Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, my friends. We have a really fun episode today. We welcome our old friend, Phil Bach, CEO of Armada ETFs, which provides investors broad access to the real estate asset class. In today's episode, Phil gives a masterclass on real estate investing. He covers the residential real estate space, the problem investors have come across this year with private REIT strategies, and why he has a solution to their struggles. Then he shares how he's using AI and machine learning to the REIT space through his long-only hedge fund. As much as Phil loves the real estate space, he is a true entrepreneur with a curious mind and would be my first call if I ever started a VC fund. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. A typical day in the life of a financial advisor calls for back-to-back client meetings, juggling portfolio management, and the consistent desire to improve client relationships. YCharts report and proposal tools could be the missing piece to help you effectively handle these time-consuming tasks. Now more than ever, clients want to hear from their advisors and with user-friendly templates at your disposal, generating impactful client reports can be easily integrated into your everyday routine, helping you free up time and focus on what matters most, enhancing client interactions and growing AUM. Need to make a clear head-to-head comparison between a client's existing portfolio and your proposed one? Want a seamless way to educate your client and present market trends with minimal effort? Join thousands of users who rely on YCharts to easily answer those questions and much more by leveraging personalized proposal reports to truly showcase your value add. Click the link in the show notes to learn what others are saying about YCharts' comprehensive suite of reporting and proposal generation tools. Get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial. Click the link in the show notes or tell them Meb sent you for new customers only. Please enjoy this episode with Armada ETF's Phil Bach. Phil, welcome to the show. All right, great to be here. Thanks, Meb. Where do we find you today? I'm in Detroit, Michigan. I had a blast hanging with you there. Is this your first time on the Meb Favor Show, Phil? This is my first time, and, and I have to say, it's really an honor to be here. I have learned so much. I've been listening to your show for years, and you know the amount that I've learned from your guests and from you for putting this out there, you know, I just want to say... I really appreciate it. All right. Well, some some smart psychology there. You're trying to butter up the host. But you know, it's funny because you're one of my favorite people in the world to talk to. You and I sit down over food or a beer, wherever we are in the world. And it's just like a two hour long brainstorm. And usually what I sit down to talk to you about, I'm like, you know, thinking, here's what you're doing now. There's like four other things we both get deep into. So we're, we're going to go down a few of those rabbit holes, alleyways today. I was trying to think about this. Are you in one word? Is it more entrepreneur or investor? That's a great question. I think I identify as an entrepreneur. It's actually a very key part of, of how I ended up in REITs because I'm an entrepreneur, but I love markets. So there's something to me, markets are magical. They're beautiful. They've got natural patterns, natural cycles. And there's this like tug of war between order and chaos. And, you know, I, I, I love markets. And, you know, I started my career mostly as doing, you know, some smart beta stuff with different ETF issuers, product development and structuring. Came to do a lot of capital markets work with the NYSE. And, you know, the thing is, like, at the end of the day, the further I get from markets, like the less happy I am. Like, I, you know, the idea of being in a market, thinking about capital preservation, thinking about how to harness you know, the energies of the markets and, and you know, create better outcomes for investors is what, what ultimately what really drives me. And you know, I'll, I'll just tell you, I'll just jump into it and tell you a little story, which is you know, over the last few years, I've been raising capital for, for a different company. I had a company, Exponential ETFs. I tried to do something on nav trading of ETFs. I was working for a fintech for a bit and you know, various different ventures of, uh, of different levels of success. And there's this idea out there, and as you talk to VCs and you talk to even some allocators and, and advisors, there's this like poisonous idea out there that asset management is commoditized and anything is good enough. It doesn't really matter, you know, as long as you have a good story or if you're cheap or you know whatever it is. It doesn't really. There, there's not a lot of value to the asset management process, and 
you know, as I'm going through, like, like at the end of the day, as an entrepreneur, you need funding to start a business, right? You need some sort of capital. You need a capital base. You know, that is the gatekeeper. And it's this big joke, like, oh, everyone thinks, well, I don't want to work for the man. I want to work for myself. I want to, you know, be independent. But you're never really independent. Either you have clients that you answer to, or you have capital that you answer to. And in my case, I was seeking capital. And I was hearing from those sources of capital that, Asset management doesn't matter. The markets themselves don't matter. Look for some technological advantage, some structural advantage. The markets don't matter. And that just didn't sit with me. It just didn't, it, you know, like I, I tried, I looked at a few things. At the end of the day, you know, there's something about the markets that's magnetic, that that really just kind of, you know, that that just draws me. So so I would say, yeah, I'm an entrepreneur, but, but an investor too, because uh, because I do love the markets. And that's really what brought me to REITs and what I'm doing now to the REIT opportunity is, yeah. you know, the idea that, you know, there are some very overlooked issues and areas in the capital markets now that aren't getting the attention that investors would be wise to give them. It's real estate is something that I feel like for most people is the wedge into personal finance and investing world. Everyone kind of gets housing as an investment. It's not as esoteric as a lot of what we do in our world. So most people get the concept of real estate. And so alluding to kind of what we were talking about earlier, this seems like this would be a well-established asset class that there's not enough room for innovation. But what sort of drew you to this was the was the wedge on house, H-A-U-S, the ETF first there, or what uh, What brought you in? So, you know, like I said, I was doing some soul searching and, and you know, thinking deeply about asset management and innovation and fintech and where things are. And, you know, the thing about REITs, they're very tangible, right? The REIT, every REIT owns real estate and you can visit the properties and I have, right? And the valuations could fluctuate, but there's a baseline. There's an intrinsic value, right? There's a family that has a roof over their head, there's a business that's operating out of a warehouse. It's real. It's, you know, it's something that you can feel and smell and touch. A very transparent asset class. You know exactly what's in it. You know what they own. They have very strong balance sheets. People don't realize that. They have very strong balance sheets. They have predictable cash flows. Um, and of course, you know, being backed by the by the asset, there was something very, very kind of secure. As I think, like, you know, I'm seeing so many of these like, like just hot theme of the day and and you know, so many people chasing just you know, as the winds are blowing around from this trend or that trend. And I was looking for something that felt more real, that felt more permanent and secure, that could be a tool for capital preservation. And I know, you know, people could talk about where we are right now in the cycle and, and read valuations and we can do that. But there was something about the REIT that to me was very comforting, that that I felt like it was very real and it couldn't be, you know, just kind of it couldn't disappear one day to the next. There can't be that many shenanigans when you know what they own, when you know that the real estate is there, when the real estate itself has value. So, you know, I'm thinking more longer term. I'm not thinking about a six month business. I'm thinking, what do I want to spend the next decade of my life building? And, you know, start looking closer at REITs. A couple of interesting things. One is a REIT is not real estate. And I had always assumed that, you know, Real estates are more or less fungible. A REIT is a REIT. They're all going to give you more or less. They're going to give you real estate exposure. And what I started to see was, no, a REIT is actually a tax treatment. The correlations between the different REIT subcategories is actually very low. And just because a hospital elects for the REIT tax treatment, as does a data center, there's nothing about those two assets that's correlated. In fact, the sub, the the you know when you look at what's driving the data centers and the cell towers and some of the other REITs, they're almost as highly, not as much, but almost as highly correlated to technology as they are to the real estate sector. So- you know, when you look at market cap weighting, and we can go down that wormhole and talk about indexing, but when you look at it specifically in REITs, right? The right now VNQ is seventy percent of all REIT ETF AUM, and when you add in the iShares, you've got about eighty-five percent of all REIT ETF assets are in market cap weighted indexes. And for REITs specifically, that means that people are investing blindly into you know assets that are kind of technology, kind of healthcare, kind of real estate, real estate-ish. There's a lot of real estate there but it's not a perfect bogey for real estate, not even close. So when you look at, you know, what's coming now with, with you know, the subsector correlations are even dropping, they're getting lower. There's a lot of, um, you know, chaos and movement within the space, geographical 
um, dispersions. We're looking at um, sub-asset, you know, sub-sector dispersions. There's a lot going on in this space, which means that there's also opportunity and there's also a way to do things better for investors. And, and that's what we saw. That's what we're doing. You know, we think we're providing, you know, we're trying <laughs> to provide uh, a better outcome for investors than, you know, just investing in either the, the you know, market cap weighted REIT index funds or the private REIT funds, which have a whole different set of issues that we could talk about. Yeah. You know, I always scratch my head and, and we probably had this conversation over the years. It's it's always strange to me, you know, much like the sectors within the U.S. stock market, tech and utilities, but looking at real estate is probably even more varied. I mean, talking about you have commercial, you have residential, you have data centers, you have, you know, healthcare, re- on and on and on and on, malls, shopping centers that have very different return profiles. And you'll see the spread some years where the performance is, I don't know, 30 percentage points different, you know, especially during COVID times. So do you want to talk a little bit about residential in a house or do you want to move straight into the death star of uh, B-REIT and everything going on uh, there? Well, let's let's start with house and, you know, exactly what you just said, where the return profiles are quite different. Not only that, but the factors driving that performance, the reason why you might make a, a bet uh, for or against one real REIT subsector is very different than the others. So for example, REITs. What's driving what's driving REITs? Interest rates, of course, rate sensitivity, economic impact, absolutely, but also supply demand imbalance. And by the way, the supply, which Fannie Mae says we're three million units short right now of supply of housing in the US, that supply is constrained further by rising rates. The the REITs that we own are all existing. They're already financed, but their their competition the supply saturation that would otherwise come in, they can't get financed at higher rates, right? What else is driving revaluations? Migration trends, demographic trends, right? These are things that are not captured by, you know, a top-down equity model or certainly, you know, by market cap weighted or by fixed income models. There, you know, REITs need to be valued as REITs, right? You're looking at occupancy rates and vacancy rates, right? You're looking at a totally different set of factors. And uh, I think too many investors are just saying, well, it's, you know, it's a small percentage of the portfolio. We don't have to think too deeply about it. And, um, you know, we, we believe that that they do need to think deeply about it or they need to rely on a REIT asset manager, us or someone else that is thinking deeply about it because if they're not taking you know, demographic trends and geographic trends, they're not taking these factors, uh, you know, occupancy rates, if they're not looking at that in their analysis, they're going to be behind the curve. Well, as you know, and you mentioned, and we can't spend too much time on this because we'll we'll lose the, the thread, <laughs> but everyone just lobs, if they do real estate at all, they just lob all their money into the market cap weights on the public side, right? You mentioned B&Q as well as the the other biggies there. What's the problem with that? You know, why shouldn't we just be buying market cap V&Q and ditto with SPY if this isn't a a trigger point for you? What's wrong with market cap weighting? Why is that not optimal? Well, it certainly performed well. There's there's no question. And if you have a time machine, then I would say absolutely do so and use the time machine, go back, you know, to global financial crisis and and put all your money in mega cap tech and and cap weight, which is, you know, essentially momentum factor. And, you know, you will do quite well. And I don't think it's the worst way to invest on a going forward basis. Certainly you could do it for free and it's, you know, quite efficient. There's a natural cycle to things, right? There's a natural cycle to companies. Companies come and go. There's no company that goes in one direction forever. And there were times where the railroads were invincible. They were the, you know, mega cap tech monopolies of their time. Uh, There were, you know, there was a time not long ago when Nokia was indestructible. Right, there are companies that that come and go. Um, there are cycles that come and go, and this idea that you know, while the the Fang monopoly valuations are so high, they you know, there's nothing that can stop them. They're just going to go forever. You know, Amazon is going to trade to infinity. The PE doesn't matter. It could just go forever. It's not PE anymore. It's now like PE has been supplanted with price to revenue. So it's not even earnings. It's like you know, what used to be crazy at forty times earnings is now forty times sales. So we got to readjust our metrics. I mean, it's wild. The, you know, valuation doesn't matter, but it will. You know, and at the end of the day, you know, what I believe is that narratives drive flows and flows drive performance. That's what I've seen from the market for the last decade. You know, fundamentals and valuations haven't mattered. You know, I think they will matter again, but I don't know when, I don't know how. The narrative, the Vanguard narrative of just buy whatever, buy low cost, the market's been up, has been very powerful. And it's driven flows into cap-weighted indexes, cap-weighted funds, 
And that has driven, in large part, the performance of such in a self-fulfilling prophecy. That narrative will one day one run dry, right? Nothing goes forever in, in, in these markets. There's no factor. There's no narrative. There's no story that goes forever. In a market where investors have been getting you know, such good returns for so long with so little volatility, with the belief that the Fed is going to support markets no matter what, then yeah, there is complacency and indexing will do you just fine. You know, you can buy the S&P for three basis points. You know, it's done quite well. The narrative, the story about active managers underperforming, it's a great story. Of course, most of that data comes from a time where either, you know, active funds were in large part uh, index hugging, they were expensive. And when they were the dominant force in the market, it's a zero sum. You take out fees. Of course, they're going to underperform in aggregate. Right. But now we're getting to a different cycle. Now we're getting to the end of a bull run. And look, it could continue. We might go sideways and not down. I don't, I'm not calling a crash here, but I'm saying that the complacency that investors have and this idea that market cap waiting is good enough is sure it's certain to fail. It will, mm -hmm. they will run out of gas eventually. These stocks cannot go on an indefinite timeline for mega cap to outperform mid and small cap forever when there will be technologies that we don't yet, you know, aren't yet aware of that are going to uproot what, you know, what the monopolies are doing. There will be insurgent companies. There will be antitrust issues from the big guys. Things change over time. And uh, that will happen now. This time is not different. That will happen again. I told you guys, I can't get Phil started. He's very passionate. But my favorite graphic about this, like the, the, my favorite statement is the problem with market cap waiting and there's no tether to valuation. And so when things go nuts to the upside, you get most of the weight in the things that went nuts and, and are usually extremely expensive, which in the future becomes a drag. And most people, I think if you were to ask most, certainly most retail investors, and I would see, let's say a decent amount of pros to describe passive investing and market cap investing, I don't, I don't know that they would get it right, that it's just the stock price that determines the entire portfolio weighting of the company. So- in the REIT space, which is a subsector of the whole market, market cap weighting, you know, still problematic. But the simple answer to that, of course, is you can just go into private real estate, which solves all these problems, right? Like this is, you don't have to worry about market cap weighting in private real estate, right? Like what in that, in that solution? The private real estate fund market is the most it's, it's the most incredible thing I've ever seen in my career. And, and again, I came at this recently and I started looking at this and you know, the first thing when I started, you know, we started building a read asset manager and okay, let's do a competitive analysis. Let's see what's working and what's not. And I saw the success of uh, the private read funds in particular, uh, Blackstone's B read has been the most successful. And this is a fund that was bringing in at its peak $3 billion a month in inflows. They got up to about $70 billion in assets. It was a little bit leveraged. So about $110 billion in real estate. And it just seemed like uh, you know this was like they had done a remarkable job, and and they they did in, in some respects they you know very smart group they're incredible at sourcing capital at deal sourcing very efficient at managing properties they've bought tremendous properties really excellent properties they're great capital allocators they've told a great story to investors you know I think their success on the way up was very well earned and very well executed and have a lot of respect for what they've done. You get to a point though, it's it's classic. Comma, but <laughs> comma, but <laughs> it's a classic victim of your own success, right? Success breeds hubris and hubris breeds disaster. And 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 here we are. And and you know, you've got a situation now where you know these funds, these private refunds, there's a Blackstone, there's a Starwood, there's a KKR, and on and on and on. Um, these these private refunds had been the largest buyer of commercial real estate. And it's not exactly their fault that investors pile in at the worst possible time. They always do. So investors are chasing performance. They're coming in at peak valuations um, and, and they have to put the money to work. So they start buying at peak valuations and you've got this perfect storm almost where you know, the largest buyers of commercial real estate had been these private REIT funds. All of a sudden, right, when, when everything turned, it turned so fast, the largest buyers became the largest sellers. And not only the largest sellers, but they're forced sellers at a time, at specifically at the time where there is no liquidity in the commercial real estate market. And everything happened at once. And it's not a surprise that everything happened at once because those factors that would return, that, that would turn these tremendous inflows into redemptions, right? And those factors that would freeze the liquidity of the commercial real estate market, and those factors that would drop the, the value of that commercial real estate 
are all the same thing, obviously. And you can see it in hindsight, but nobody thinks about these things on the way up. Everyone assumes there's so much liquidity on the way up. Everyone assumes that liquidity will be there on the way down in every, every asset class. And commercial real estate was no different. So on the way up, they have all this money coming in. They're putting it to work at these peak valuations. And all of a sudden the market turns. And now what do you do? You have redemption requests that exceed the amount of cash they have. They can't meet the redemption requests. They gate the fund, which, you know, in their prospectus, it said they can, but I don't think anybody believed they would or wanted them to. And all of a sudden now there's a scramble for liquidity. So, you know, we're watching this thing and we predicted, by the way, I predicted on Twitter ahead of time that they would have to gate the fund before they did. And they did. And we start talking to investors about it. And it was like, well, no, they're so smart. They're fine. They're fine. They're fine. I said, you know, this is going to pass. This is just a couple months. They, they had some Asian redemptions that, you know, everyone's like, well, that doesn't really count for some reason. I don't know why that wouldn't count. But it's not resolved. And, and they had to spend, they had to give a preferential waterfall treatment to UC for one quarter for four and a half billion of liquidity, uh, which kind of kicked the can down the road. They're starting to sell properties. They're selling the best of what they own, not the worst, but the best, the most desirable. And, and they're selling it at, you know, a so far reasonable prices, but prices are coming down. But here's the amazing thing. This is the, the miracle here is that the nav of the fund hasn't moved. The nav hasn't budged. Now, if you look historically and you take private REITs versus public REITs. It's not true. NAV's up this year. The nav is up. It's a miracle. It's incredible. Not only is it up, it's up following the hurdle rate of their fees. It's up net of fees, which are which we can get into. But you know, basically, depending on the year because of the performance fee, depending on the class because of the selling fee, but it's net net, it's, it's by and large about a 300 basis point hurdle rate that they have to exceed compounding year after year. Nobody's that good. I'm sorry, nobody is that good. 300 yeah. basis points in fees every year compounding. Well, so, I mean, the initial attraction to private re sort of asset class or private real estate, I think for most advisors up till now, you know, I, I can kind of sympathize with the advisors that may have done it in the past because they said, look, I don't want to deal with these clients. They're a headache. Let's put them in this fund that you wink, wink, nod, nod, handshake has a 4% volatility. You know, like we, we get these email marketing all the time. And I usually respond to the email marketers. I'm like, FYI, you shouldn't send this to me. Like you're, you're, this is the wolf in the hen house. And if you send me something like really sketchy, like I'm, I'm going to tweet it probably. Like I, like I do this many times where I'm like, you, you shouldn't, but you do. And it's public and you're spamming people with it. But being able to claim something like the private real estate market has like a 4% vol. So the listeners who aren't as familiar, you know, stock market volatility, high teens, right? REIT volatility. Let's, it's usually in like the twenties. I think REITs decline what seventy percent in the financial crisis, eighty percent or something. Uh, it is a very volatile asset class, on, and that's on aggregate anyway. So, but people say just because we only look once a year, once a quarter, same thing with private equity in general, and we can kind of smooth the returns. We've magically transformed this, and, and Cliff obviously talks a lot about this with uh, volatility laundering. You know, the ability to transform a very volatile asset class into a not volatile one just through the magic of only looking once a year is a pretty questionable practice. And I'm actually surprised the regulators haven't come down on that yet. I think they will, because it's it's really just kind of very misleading at best. The way the NAV is set in these funds is appraisal based. The appraisers come by once a year. They can adjust it on a monthly basis. But you know, there, there are several factors. One is just what you have with every private fund where because the NAV is set more, you know, more infrequent, that it seems to be a little smoother of a return ride than it would be if it was marked to market, marked, marked to market daily. You also have a human bias. When, when you bring in the appraisers, people are anchored to their previous marks. And it's harder for people to say, well, I said this property was worth 50 million you know, last month. And now I think it's worth 40 because the market's down. People are very reluctant to do something like that. So, you know, the, the unfortunate thing about this, and, and it really is it really is sad, is that there's been so little volatility in this fund. When you look at the performance, it's almost a linear line up and to the right. There's been so little volatility in this fund that it has been marketed to and optimized into portfolios as a bogey for fixed income and something appropriate for, you know, the proverbial widows and orphans, for the least risk tolerant. And that is a lot of the people who are in this fund. 
the least risk tolerant. And, you know, we can get to the valuations, but we think they're sitting on a 40%. We think they're overvalued relative to the public market comps when we normalize for Blackstone's ability to deal source and, and their, their efficiencies are running. When we normalize for property type, when we normalize for class, when we normalize for geography, and when we normalize for subsector, we believe that they're sitting on a 40% valuation gap by cap rate and by FFO, 44 40%. So investors are sitting there thinking that they own this. They're paying a fee at the NAV. They're getting, uh, in most cases, they're getting their dividends paid out as dilutive shares at the NAV. So you could say also potentially inflated. And it's it's really tragic because these are investors that don't think they're in an, an instrument that has the ability to drop 40%. These aren't people who are buying you know, the leveraged ARK ETF. These are oh, people this- who think they're buying something that is you know, steady and, and safe. And it's not well, the, the, uh, I imagine a lot also have come through advisors. I mean, this fund was up 8.4% last year, as well as being up this year. And you mentioned, I, I looked it up while we we're talking while the NAV is 68 billion, the total asset value is 122 billion. So that's a darn near 50% leverage ratio, which is pretty astonishing. I, I imagine that's gone up as They've had to have some liquidity. So if they hit, if they continue to hit, there was an article, I think, last night or yesterday or the last couple of days that was talking about BREIT still, where it was talking about they want to kind of pivot to AI data centers. Did you see this? Yeah, I did. Yeah. <laughs> and I wonder if that was like a, a marketing it's move. To try it. With $122 billion in, in in real estate, even with the gates, they have to provide 5% liquidity per quarter for redemption requests. That's a lot of real estate to sell, right? And there are two ways that they could do it. They can sell the real estate or they can attract enough enough inflows, enough people buying into the fund that are essentially the exit liquidity that they can use to offset the redemptions. And, you know, they've been on record saying that they believe that the performance of the fund, you know, performance, you could put in quotes, but the performance of the fund has been so strong that that will attract the investors to offset the redemption request, which I would submit is a little bit concerning, right? That tells you an incentive, not to say that they are, you know, intentionally mismanaging the marks, but that right there is your incentive. The other way to do it is to sell real estate. Well, if you sell real estate, you can't you can't fake the the marks on uh on a sale. You can't you're going to bring in cash and the value that you're bringing in is, you know, where NAF for that asset at least has to be written. You know, this idea that well they can kick the can down the road and they can keep the marks elevated for the NAVs indefinitely, they can't. They can until they have the redemption requests are such that they have to start selling properties. When they sell the properties, they start marking them down to the cash value that they were able to bring in. And that is what kicks off the downturn in the NAV. And that's when investors are gonna start to feel the pain. So what's the most likely scenario for how this kind of plays out? Is it that they just continue to have the withdrawal requests and then they try to, trail the market, the public comps for the next couple, two years, and eventually it kind of catches up. I mean, there, there's obviously a death spiral scenario where real estate continues to get pounded, in which case they get into, I imagine, some deep trouble because it moves the other way. What what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, there, there is a, a potential, you know, we're calling it the liquidity death spiral, right? There is the potential for things to go completely haywire where, you know, the redemption requests force them to sell properties in a fire sale, which means that they get appraised downwards. There's a NAV drawdown. Investors get nervous. They put in more redemption requests and it goes on and on and on like that. That is a possibility. That's not necessarily uh, a guarantee. That's not necessarily going to happen. You know, they can they can buy time. They can buy quite a bit of time. They have some access to liquidity through CMBS. They can do more deals like they did with UC. They can attract investors. All of those things will buy them time. But eventually, it doesn't change the fact that there will be a convergence between the public REITs and the private REITs. So over time, if you look at it historically, there's always this divergence and convergence. Like it's, it's actually pretty regular, a divergence and convergence between the value of real estate uh, through public, publicly listed REITs and private REITs. And, you know, they, they've diverged in the past, they've diverged significantly, but they always eventually they converge again. And it stands to reason, right? The, the building itself is worth what it's worth. The building doesn't care if it's owned by Blackstone in a private REIT or if it's owned by Prologis in a public REIT. It doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter to whoever would be appraising or buying that building in a fair free market. So 
we've made our bet. We think that right now, at this point in time, public REITs are significantly better for investors. Forget about the transparency and the liquidity and the, the lower fees. Forget about all that. Just on a valuation basis, right? we can buy these things at a 40% discount, 40%, you know, by our calculations, by FFO and by cap rate at a 40% discount to what you'd be paying if you bought into Blackstone. And by the way, if you put money into Blackstone and into BREIT, you're not, that money's not going to buy real estate. That money is going to pay out the dividends and the redemption requests of others, right? And I think there's a name for that when you use people's investment money to go and pay out other people. So I, I think investors need to be very, you know- Rhymes very with Ronzi. If you look at just last year alone, Blackstone's fund did eight, almost 9%. B&Q as a benchmark did minus 26. So there's a 34 percentage point gap and maybe it's all alpha, <laughs> but the 34 percentage point gap last year in performance, which um, is quite a bit. It's, it's literally unbelievable. <laughs> um, all right. Literally. So, okay. So if you're in the fund, I assume you're just kind of stuck, right? You don't, there's nothing you can really do at this point, right? Yeah, that's right. Again, you can put in, you can submit your redemption requests. You have to resubmit them every month. I would advise people to do so. You'll get some of the money out. It'll trickle out. Uh, like I said, the current gates uh, allow for five percent redemptions every quarter. You know, get that five percent. You know, start getting your money out. And um, you know, if you're allocating into the asset class going forward, which I think is a prudent approach, and I think you know, certainly on a you know an ongoing um, you know dollar cost averaging way, I would suggest finding uh, more efficient methods to do so. Today's podcast is sponsored by the Idea Farm. Do you want the same investing edge as the pros? The Idea Farm gives you access to some of these same research, usually reserved for only the world's largest institutions, funds, and money managers. These are reports from some of the most respected research shops in investing. Many of them cost thousands and are only available to institutions or investment pros. But now they can be yours with a subscription to The Idea Farm. Are you ready for an edge? Visit theideafarm.com to learn more. So you wrote a paper, which may or may not be out yet. If it is out, we'll link to it in the show notes that um, was uh, very spicy. I'm sure we talked about most of the points here. If there's anything left out, feel free to let's let's talk about it. But you got some ideas and some solutions on how to think about investments and trades around this concept and including a new fund, PRVT, private. Yes. Yeah, so what we're trying to do, we're saying that, look, we agree. We acknowledge that, you know, Blackstone and Starwood are the two that primarily that we're looking at, that they are master capital allocators, that they're very good at selecting properties, at selecting asset classes. And um, we want to, you know, we think investors should be able to allocate those those ideas and those geographies and those property class types. And, you know, those from a fundamental standpoint, those allocations but is there a way to do it without paying the the you know private read valuations, without being gated and locked up and having liquidity issues, without the high fees? Is there a way to do it? And we think we've created just that. So private real estate strategy is the name of the ETF. We're using their strategies. We're replicating what they're doing from a fundamental standpoint via liquid REITs. So we're just using liquid listed uh, REITs. We're, we're doing it in an ETF vehicle. Our expense ratio is less than half of theirs, but we also have no embedded selling fee. Uh, no performance fee. So it's significantly net of fees. It'll be significantly better for investors. There's no liquidity gating or anything like that that can happen. Um, and we're buying into the real estate at what we believe is a 40% discount. So, I mean, you know, it's a hell of an arbitrage. How does one go and replicate private real estate in a public vehicle? That sounds like magic. No, it's not magic. You know, they publish in their, you know, 10Q and their in their 10K every quarter. They publish what they have. We um are a real estate company. Our our sister company and our backers are all real estate people. We're, you know, very aware of what properties are out on the street or or you know that they're trying to sell. And um, you know, we're able to, you know, get out in front of those trends. And, you know, right now they're in industrial and residential. They have some data center stuff. We're able to replicate that. They're on all class A. We we know the geographies that they have. And we're able to replicate that based on the information that we have and give people, it's not going to be exactly precise. It'll be pretty damn close from a fundamental standpoint, from the factors that we're trying to replicate. And I know you've had some people on the show talking about statistical replication of hedge funds. And I think there's a lot of viability to what they're doing. You know, that was the original plan. We went down the path of, of doing that in this case, but it didn't work. 
Why didn't it work? Because there's no volatility. When you look at the NAVs and the reported NAVs that have come out in this thing, there is zero volatility. In fact, you know, we were told by one of the leading, you know, factor replication firms out there who, who I was talking to about this. They said, just buy, buy levered treasuries if you want to replicate BREIT, <laughs> which is mm. hysterical. And look, we all know risk is not backwards looking. Risk is forward looking, right? And these things, these... Uh, systemic issues and how this fund was created and, and, you know, how, you know, the liquidity issues right now that can't be modeled using the historical data set. We needed to, to approach it this way. I think what we have is going to be far more efficient for investors that are concerned about liquidity, that are concerned about what valuations are being marked at and where the money's going in right now. So hopefully, um, you know, investors will heed the call. So if you're an investor in B-Read, it sounds like, you know, no offense. Sucks to be you. You're stuck. That's fine. Whatever. You can't get out. You can get out if you can. I mean, this is more targeted at someone who's like, look, I want something similar to B-REIT, but I don't want to get stuck. And I want the same exposure. I want to try to... You had a tweet thread, by the way, which I haven't seen many people outpace me on length of tweet threads. I have a four-part series once that was like 120 something. You had like a 50 banger but was a was kind of on this concept of replication and back tests. And we'll link to it in the show notes because it's worth reading. But so really, this is for the person that kind of would want something like the private read is either burned or has seen the headlines like, I don't want to deal with these headlines to my clients. Because I think the worst case scenario is the financial advisor that allocated with the assumption that there would be liquidity needs it and it's stuck. Like that is a terrible situation. If you if you invest knowing full well, you might get gated. It's like a private equity fund. You invest knowing full well, you may not get your money for 10 years. Okay, that's one thing. But if you invest all your clients' money in these funds and you know didn't really say, well, that'll never happen. And then it does, you're up uh you're up shit's creek. So um this is kind of target for them. Is that is that kind of a decent uh overview? That's exactly it. If you want Blackstone and Starwood's fundamental allocation and how they're looking at real estate, this is, we believe, a more efficient vehicle for you. You know, if you want Phil Bach's uh, view of real estate, then, you know, we're managing now um, uh, privately, we're managing through our AI technology. We just merged with uh, an AI development company and we we're looking at things a little bit differently and, and we can get into that. And if you want yeah. pure play, if you want pure real estate exposure, you want the rental incomes from residential housing, then we have uh, an ETF that tracks that, the HAUS house ETF. All right, check it out. HAUS, PRVT, both those pretty cool ideas. You know, there's a quote from Seth Klarman where he says, uh, be sure you're well compensated for illiquidity, especially illiquidity without control because it can create particularly high opportunity costs. Well said and even probably understated in uh, this sort of uh, scenario. All right. You alluded to machine learning, AI, REITs. What does that mean? So, you know, AI is, is it's really fascinating. A lot of people are talking about AI as a category. To me, it's, it's a tool, right? And, you know, what we're trying to do is identify how can we get better REIT returns, better REIT allocations? How can we provide smarter and better uh, REIT exposure to investors? So, AI to me isn't a category. It's it's just, you know, a means to an end. The end is the same thing it's always been. Machine learning allows us to do the same things that everyone else is doing, the same things that we've done, uh, but it allows us to run more calculations than we've previously been able to. So like if you take a look at, let's say you take every factor that you might use to value a REIT, and they're different than equity factors. They're different than fixed income factors. In some cases, they're the same. In some cases, there's overlap, but there are factors that are unique and specific to REITs. With static data, you can only go so far. You can run over you know, a time period, you can run a regression analysis and say, all right, here's you know, your factor exposures that matter the most and in what proportion. But when you have dynamic data that self-optimizes, it's, it's miles apart. Technology is, tends to be a one-way wrench. And once we you know, make a breakthrough and go somewhere, we don't often go back. And I don't think we're going to go back to you know, what we've done previously with either fundamental analysis or smart beta analysis, which is essentially what we're doing, but in a static way. You know, you take every factor, right? I mentioned there are 25 factors. So we have 25 separate machine learning models that are running simultaneously that, and, you know, to look at how each factor impacts REITs. Some are technical, some are fundamental. And each one, let's take an example. Um, let's look at like our yield spread model. So when you take a look at the yield spread between a REIT and the 10-year, if you look at it as a static number, 
right? As a as just a static number, we have found no predictive value in the future price of that REIT relative to the category. You could say it's priced into the market or you know whatever you want to say. But the machine learning model found for us that the change in the spread, when that spread gets repriced, and more so the velocity of that change becomes a flashing red signal about mm -hmm. the future returns of that REIT. When the market decides on a spread basis to reprice a REIT, that is very predictive of the future returns of that REIT. And you know, I said we have 25 factors. Each model is giving us second and third derivative effects of each factor in real time. So it's really fascinating what you're able to discover. And look, there could be a day where our spread signal stops working. That's okay. You know, the model's self-optimizing. The model will tell us this is no longer working and exactly in what proportion it should be as a, you know, in terms of the overall factor mix. And when you look at the machine learning decision trees, like the main thing is you can find relationships between factors that humans couldn't do. There's no way that a human and a, and a, and a static model can find, you know, the, the the different variables, the different connections between, you know, the market environments and the different factors, the factors in each other is just not possible to run that amount of data. But now we have large sets of REIT data that we've cleaned, analyzed, we've customized it for REITs. We've got, you know, we're training the machine learning algorithms in real time. We continue to train them in an ongoing basis. We will always be training them. So they are self-optimizing. They are alive. They're not static. So they're able to reprice the value of a factor, the value of a signal, even in an environment that looks nothing like the environment that the data was trained in. How much of this do you think on the output is finding new factors or is it kind of reinterpretation of existing ones that you think may not have um, insights you may not have kind of understood or is it something else entirely? I think it's both. And it's, again, the model, is, it's the ability to build a model that can tell us whether we need to, you know, whether there's a new factor, an unexplainable factor, or a reinterpretation of the factor. And like, so like one of our factors, one of our models is, you know, what we call the active passive regime, which just tells us the density versus dispersion of retrading at any given time. Because when there's a lot of density, when these things are highly correlated, they're trading together, that tells us that our models aren't even working. That says that this is a cap weight run. Let's go back into indexing and then come back in with our factors when it matters most. So, you know, the important thing is to build uh, the decision tree such that it becomes self-optimizing and it is telling us. Now, you know, the trick here is always, you know, what if the model tells you something that doesn't pass the smell test, right? If I ran um, an unconstrained model on equities over the last 10 years, it would tell me that stocks that start with A are the highest expected return because Apple and Amazon, right? And that's not a factor that you want in your model. So, you know, there, there does on the model specification part, right? And the build out part, you do need to have, you know, that level of understanding of REITs and that, that you know, the expertise understanding of the signal to be able to design it such that you can avoid noise and, and you're, you know, you're looking at pure signals. And that's, you know, that's another piece of the, you know, the art of it. But once the models are trained and set to go, they go, they go where they go. And, you know, we've found some pretty remarkable discoveries, some that, you know, we thought would, would be big and, and model tells us, you know, aren't or changed or are changing over time. And some that are, um, that are persistent. You know, so what are you going to do with this? Is this a future ETF? Uh, are you going to trade this on your own? What's the, what's the kind of insights? Where does this uh, work, its, work its way out? Right now, we're managing a small hedge fund, a uh, long-only hedge fund with the data. We have the ability to customize it and do more. Uh, we think it works best when it is customized for specific outcomes. So be that, you know, downside volatility, be that, um, you know, absolute return, like whatever the specific strategy is. But we're, you know, we're working on that analysis right now. We're open to partnering with asset managers. We're open to working with people and creating customized solutions through SMAs on it. We may do an ETF. I'm not sure. We have two funds now, two ETFs out there, and I think. You know, between private and house, we you know we've covered what we consider to be most of the investor needs for current allocation models. So, you know, we'll 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 see where where the opportunity goes. But you know, for us, the the you know the main thing is that we've got you know the REIT specific train data and you know the the twenty five factor models, but thirty five models in total. Some are regime models, some are pattern ma matching models, and you know I think we're ahead of anybody else in the space, and we want to stay there. Is there anything where it's really pointing towards a big 
opportunities today as far as sectors? Is it like, you know what, this certain area looks really attractive or really terrible, or is it sort of a just muddled bag security specific? I'll tell you, I was saving this one in case you asked me. I know often you ask, uh, um, you ask people, you know, what is their most memorable investment? Yeah, let's hear it. So a lot of debate and discussion on our team about the key question that a lot of people that we've talked to, a lot of allocators that we ask ourselves is, what if the model spits out something that doesn't pass the smell test? Do you override the model or do you go with the model? And it's a very difficult question. We've got a lot of different opinions on our team and through our stakeholders. And, um, you know, my feeling personally, and, and again, this isn't necessarily the Armada consensus view, but, you know, my feeling is people are investing with us because they want the model output. If they don't want to trust the model 100%, then they can, you know, split up the allocation to other managers. But our mandate is to provide the model exposure. And, what you know, our job is to make sure that it's built with the guardrails and the specifications such that, you know, we can't get an outcome that we don't think is is right. But I mentioned, you know, we've got fundamental and technical factors and indicators. And, you know, we've got these technical factors. I've never really been a technical analyst. A couple of weeks ago, the model flipped positive on office REITs for technical reasons. And I don't want to own an office REIT right now, you know, myself personally. And the model said, you know, hey, we're, we're going long office REITs. We had a lot of discussion on our team. What do we do? Like, you know, the, the model saying, you know, it likes the technicals here. I don't, nobody does. I don't want to explain this to a client why I'm in an office read during, a, you know, the office read apocalypse. Wouldn't you know it? <laughs> Wouldn't you know it? We It was one of the best trades that we've had. You know, we, there was a massive short squeeze. I'm not saying that the model's always right or we can time these things on an ongoing basis. It was right in this time, but it was a very good reminder that, look, we built this technology. We've invested in it. Our partners at Ariago have been working on this thing for almost 10 years. We've got some of the top data scientists in the world that are working on this model. We need to trust the model, right? And, you know, what what I can see in my limited view and my limited capability that, yeah, you know, Office reads bad. Like, you know, th that, that limited view is far surpassed by a machine learning algorithm that's running 35 consecutive models with, you know, countless decision trees with, uh, you know, probably the world's greatest data source set for REITs that's ever been put together. I need to trust that model and, you know, kind of take a step back and, and let it do what it did, which thankfully we did, but it was a good reminder of that. Yeah. I mean, I think if you get to the point in model building where you say, okay, we set this up, these are the rules, this is, you kind of in your mind have to account for the rare tail events on both sides. What happens if this spits out X, Y, Z, you know, you have to account for that or what happens if it spits it out and then it goes down 80% or what happens if it goes up like a five bagger, 10 bagger. And all of a sudden it's like a huge part of the strategy or fund. Like that's stuff to think about ahead of time. And once you have that all set up really, you know, everyone knows as a systematic person, you really have no business mucking around with it. Cause I guarantee you every time without fail that I look at a lot of the portfolio holdings for many of our systematic strategies on the value screening side. I'm like, oh my gosh, we're buying that. Are you kidding me? But also on like the trend side, there's been so many times and people, it's it's funny to watch them when there's been an asset that's been performing great for a long time and then it rolls over, they really don't want to sell. Like they don't want the party to be over. And I very specifically remember REITs in 07 rolling over and uh, people being like, well, you know what? I, I think this is just going to bounce. This is like a little bounce. I'm just going to wait for it to actually confirm. And, and then it was just like, you know, the floor, the rug had been pulled out and it was just an elevator down. And ditto for assets. Like I didn't want to be buying for our momentum and trend strategies, a bunch of equities last year. I was like, oh man, this thing is not done yet. Are you kidding me? We're, we're, this is going to last. This is just the beginning. And then sure enough, you know, the, the signals are the signals and uh, here we are. So I'm at peace with it now. Like it doesn't bother me now. I, when I was younger, the signals, it took some practice for me to have a little Zen men mentality about it. Like now I don't even want to know what's in the fund. I'm just like, I just let it do its thing. And, and I'll just look at the aggregate rather than the individual. I think Jim Shaughnessy is a quote where I, I don't remember if it's exactly right, but something along the lines of like the thing I'm most proud of is that I let the models I I, I let the models run through the global financial crisis without you know overriding them. 
So let's pretend you and I are sitting down. It's actually coffee time here in California, but let's say we're sitting down for a meal, hanging out. What else is on your brain? Uh, ETF industry, startup ideas, something got you particularly excited or angry? What do we got? I'm very focused right now on 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 this, right? On on trying to, you know, really wrap my head around, you know, where the opportunity is for investors. There's a lot of anxiety out there with REITs. There's a lot of anxiety out there with real estate. But this is not the global financial crisis exactly, right? It's not the same. It's not the same factors we've never had in our lifetimes. We've never had a downturn with inflation, right? The way we have now, uh, where you want inflation protected assets. We've seen the repricing of real estate to the upside in other countries and other in other uh, geographies. There is this supply demand imbalance, and I think a lot of people are, are very spooked about REITs because of the global financial crisis and because of what they perceive as a coming, you know, market correction. But I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced that that REITs are a bad place to be. I think within REITs, like we said, there are a lot of different economies. You know, the the Jim Chano's short thesis on data centers, very convincing to me. I'm not expert enough to say for sure, but it seems to make sense. You know, when you look at uh, the competitive threats from AWS and Microsoft, and you look at the drag on the technology itself over time, very convincing. You know, when you look at office REITs, we talked about. I don't know that I want to still be in office REITs for the long term. I know someone is going to make a generational buy, that some of these office buildings are going to be bought at prices that we're going to look back 20 years from and say, wow, you could have bought this you know, incredible office building in downtown Chicago and downtown San Francisco at that price in 2023, maybe it's 2024, maybe it's 2025, but that will happen. That price will happen, right? So I I, I don't know, but but I do know that you know, we are in in a zeitgeist shift, right? We we are changing from this, you know, investor complacency, this you know, never-ending trend of, of declining rates, this never-ending wave of QE coming in over and over and over again. And now that you know the Fed has finally been spooked by you know the idea that inflation is actually a real thing, it's not a ghost, it will happen if they keep going. They have to rein it in. They finally have to rein in everything that they've been doing. And that means that the investing zeitgeist is going to change. And the complacency that investors have is going to go away. And you know, that means probably a return to fundamentals, a return to intrinsic value. Maybe you know the idea that liquidity is, is always going to be there, maybe that idea goes away too. And I don't think that's a bad thing at all. Right. I mean, you look at the seasons, right? Every every tree, the 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 leaves fall off in the winter, right? Things die in the winter. They're reborn in the spring and summer. It's natural. It's healthy. They're natural cycles. And you know, when you delay these cycles, when you have human intervention that that you know interrupts the natural order of things, you know, I believe you only make it worse. You're delaying the inevitable, but you're making it worse over time. And you know, I think you know there there is a, a you know what is it called a creative destruction or a healthy destruction. There is you know the idea that old businesses do need to die. Right. And new businesses need to come in in their place and old, you know, processes and and cycles and market factors. All of these things will turn over. And I think we're starting to see signs of that. You mentioned at one point your memorable investment seeing what you know, one of your worst investments was trading baseball cards. What was that all about? You just uh, I still feel like the collectible I most pine for was the Griffey upper deck rookie card is just seared in my memory. What does this mean to you? We are roughly of the same age of the same vintage. And mm-hmm. I think for, for a lot of people in finance that I talk to that are our age, this, you know, this idea of baseball cards as an investment when we were kids taught them a lot of lessons about investing. And, and, you know, I'm no different. And, you know, me and my brothers, like baseball cards were for, for several years when I was young, that was like our life. And, you know, I'd you know, babysit or whatever, I'd get 10 bucks. We'd go bike ride to the store, buy some baseball packs, you know, open them up. There's an element of luck and surprise. Hey, I got a good card I didn't. But they also had this idea that they would always go up. And and I what, what I did was after collecting for a few years, I'd kind of saved up a bunch of, you know, whatever for, for that age, a, a collection and, and some money. And I sold all my cards. I had these like blue chip cards. I had like a Roberto Clemente, not a rookie, but like, you know, pretty good Clemente card. I had all these cards. And I decided I'm going to invest in this Greg Jeffries rookie, this new guy that came up to the Mets that was supposed to be the next big thing. And I mean, you translate it now to stocks and it's like violating every, it's basically selling your portfolio and putting it all in your nephew's uh, startup because he's got the, the the best app that, you know, I mean, it was like so ridiculous, right? 
And the player, you know, Greg Jeffries didn't really work out. He was okay for a few years, but but certainly nothing special. You know, all these cards that I invested in all went worthless. All the cards in general pretty much went worthless, but especially those, there was a flight to quality. There were issues of liquidity. There were issues of saturation. There were a number of issues that, you know, came up just in projecting the players, right? A lot of statistical and investing lessons that came out of that, that still to this day, you know, are, are kind of seared into my memory. Like the reason why I talk about the baseball card thing is, is, you know, those patterns that you learn early, those patterns that showed up, even in like, you know, with kids trading baseball cards, they, they, they repeat themselves constantly. They're market cycles. They're, they're truths about the market. There are real patterns in markets in every market everywhere. This time is not different. And that's the key thing that it tells you this time is not different. And I don't know, I can't see the catalyst for Apple to suddenly start underperforming the broad market or Amazon. I can't see that catalyst, but I know it does exist, right? It, it will, I don't know what it's gonna be, a competitor, some issue, some, I don't know, but something will happen. A stock cannot outpace. I mean, you play that on an infinite timeline, right? Or even a hundred years of, of you know one stock or one theme outperforming the broader market or even the market itself outperforming GDP growth, any of these things. Right. When you play that out indefinitely, you start getting to valuations that very quickly look very ridiculous. Nothing goes forever. This time is not different. And that's the key takeaway that I got from the baseball cards. What investment belief do you hold that most of your professional peers don't? And it doesn't have to apply to actual like an investment belief. It could be investment industry belief, too. But like 75 percent, we sit down at the dinner table and you say this and everyone groans or is like, oh, dude, that's a terrible take. I don't. But what are you talking about? What a, you, and you can name more than one. But what, what comes to mind? So we talked a little bit about market cap weighting. To me, that's the big one. You know, the idea that index funds are better for investors, that, you know, this consensus view that everyone has that, you know, just manage costs. Costs matter. There's no cost benefit. There's no benefit side of cost benefit anymore. Um, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's really silly. And I think the data on, you know, active funds has been, you know, it's been very conclusive that it favors the index funds, of course, but you have to, you know, you're lumping in all asset managers and you're looking at it over a time where fees were significantly more expensive, even active fees were more expensive than they are today. And we're in the middle, like I said, of this kind of changing zeitgeist where, um, you know, we've gone from fundamentals driving stocks to now narratives driving stocks. And that could change. And, and I think that might change in an environment where there's more of a liquidity demand and, and less liquidity than there has been for the last decade. But this idea that you can, you know, stocks always go up and you can just buy market cap weight is, I think, uh, a very dangerous idea. And the idea that everyone can save and everyone can put money in a market, I think it's very dangerous. And a lot of people are out proliferating this advice as if it's a fact, as if it's not, you know, an opinion, you know, everyone say, well, past performance doesn't guarantee results. But then when it comes to this, you know, it's like, well, look at the past performance, right? And we're coming out of uh, a cycle really going all the way back to, you know, World War II, where there's been American exceptionalism, where, you know, the U.S. market in particular has done better than, than global equities, where U.S. equities have done better than every asset class, and where passive investing has been just fine, done better than every other strategy. So everyone's kind of, you know, resting their hat on this data set of the S&P 500, and saying that this is settled science. This is the right way to invest. It's it's cheap. You know what you're paying off these. You don't know what you're getting on alpha. Um, you don't have to worry about global diversification because you know American exceptionalism and we're the leaders. And um, stocks outperform over the long term. And I think it's a very myopic point of view. And I think it's a very dangerous point of view. I think the idea that American equities are going to outperform global equities indefinitely. Uh, is not is not going to last forever. I mean, it can't. It's just not possible. Eventually, valuations get stretched to a point where you know you have to go elsewhere. We might be there now. The idea that equities can outperform uh, global growth in a broad way, like GDP growth or inflation or however you want to measure that, if equities, which is the sum of all publicly traded companies, which is pretty much a bogey for the economy, if they outperform the economy by another measure, right? compounding over a long enough period of time, eventually you get a divergence here that's not sustainable. If you look at market cap to GDP, uh, we've already reached a level that, that you know, I don't think we've ever reached before. Um, and, it, you know, I think, I think prudence is required. I think um, active strategies, specifically strategies that focus on capital preservation, downside protection, um, I think it would be prudent to start thinking about those and to be, you know, for investors to be less dismissive 
about active management when done the right way, not to say active as a whole category, the way it's talked about, but within active management um, strategies that will accomplish those goals and to think about global diversification and to think about asset class diversification. And, you know, maybe um, for the Fed to and, and the Treasury to think less about you know, this idea of pushing investors or, or pushing, you know, the public into being investors instead of being savers, that it's a net good for everyone to be in the market. Um, I think that too is a very dangerous idea. And we're at a point now where everybody's retirement is in the market, is in the S&P 500, everybody's. Phil, where do people go to find you? Uh, what are the best places to see your spicy takes? Obviously on Twitter, what's your handle? And then uh, what are the best websites? Thanks, Meb. I'm on, I'm on Twitter at philbach1. It's uh, B-A-K. Um, I'm on Substack, philbach.substack.com. And uh, our company is Armada ETFs. The website is armadaetfs.com. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us today, bud. We'll do it again soon. All right. Thanks, Meb. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.